All right, good to see everyone again today. Looks like we're weighted more to this side. Sometimes one week after another. For those of you joining us online, we're glad that you're tuning in. So we often start out with um, fundamentals here. And one of our fundamentals is that we love you enough to tell you the truth. And sometimes that truth can be a bit of a challenge. And that's kind of the series that we're in right now. As we look at this teaching Paul has for us, in particular, we tend to focus on the marriage component, but there's a whole lot in here for us, both as believers and as part of the church. And we're essentially continuing this study on what it means when Paul wrote at the very beginning of chapter 5 that we are to imitate God by walking in love. And we're currently focused on one very specific aspect of imitating God, and that is that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And this act of being filled with the Spirit is not something that happens to us. It's something that we actively participate in in the middle voice. In fact, all of worship is to unfold in the middle voice. And you recall the middle voice lies somewhere between the active voice and the passive voice. Remember the active voice? That's that whole part where we are giving counsel to the Holy Spirit, and we know that doesn't sit right at all, right? Then there's the passive voice, and that's where we're counseled by the Holy Spirit, but then we don't do anything with it. But when we think specifically about this middle voice, this is where we take the counsel from the Holy Spirit and we apply it to our lives. So as God is moving on us, we respond to how he is moving, and that's what fills us with his Spirit. So this is the focus that we're in right now, and Paul gave us three very clear, specific examples. Praising, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that's not the only way, but those are three ways that he tells us that we can be filled with the Spirit. Now this last one, submitting, is all about unity in relationships. So that's a challenge. We know that. Whenever we're in a relationship, being unified in that relationship is something we really got to learn how to do. And that's why Paul gives us even more details by giving us three more examples on this. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and servants and masters. And so we're going to spend from now until Thanksgiving focused on this first one, marriage, wives and husbands. And Paul's main point here is that when we choose to operate within these relationships, the way that he lays out for us right here, we won't grieve or we won't quench the Holy Spirit. Rather, we'll be filled with him as we walk hand in hand in obedience to God's word. In other words, we essentially voluntarily choose to operate under God's control. And that's where that middle voice unfolds, doing things God's way for God's glory alone. That's a choice every one of us has to make every single day. Will we live in step with God's will or will we do things our way? So Paul is now teaching how it is that we're filled with the Holy Spirit by how we operate and how we interact within our marriages. That's the focus here. It's so important that we keep that front and center in our minds as we work through this teaching. Now, as we saw last week, Paul bounces back and forth several times between husbands and wives and the Christ and the church. And when he does that, we essentially get instruction on both of them. So we got to keep that in mind too. And what I love most about this approach is that it is the most clear, practical application you can imagine, right? We so often read scripture and then we're like, so how do I apply this to my life? 
Well, Paul has been teaching us on the doctrine of unity for months now, and then he shows us how that fits in the context of the church. He shows us the role of the Holy Spirit in unifying us, and then here he says, let me give you one more example. This is how you put it into practice in your marriage. Because at their core, both of these relationships, husbands and wives, Christ and the church, they're to be united as one. That's the design. And in order for multiple entities to come together the way God designed them to be united, two things have to happen. There has to be a head, and the others have to submit to that head. And of course, Paul started, and we looked at this last week, by teaching us about the role that born-again wives play in a Christian marriage. They are to submit to their husbands, the head of that relationship, just like the church submits to Christ the head of that relationship. Now, as we learned last week, submission in this context is a topic that requires careful consideration, especially with regard to Christian marriage, because unfortunately, this topic of submission has been taken on a context. People focus on what they want to focus on. They try to pull it out instead of looking at the truth. And so it's viewed as antiquated, vestiges of a bygone era that men typically tried to oppress their wives. But that's because it's taken on a context, and that was taken on a context back then, and it's so often taken on the context now. Submission, as we learned, actually has its roots in the creation account, and it's the way God designed unity within relationships, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And perhaps the best way to see how submission was designed to work is when we look at the Trinity. And we closed out last week by looking at this. There is one God and three distinct persons. They're united as one God, but each of them retain their separate identity. The Son is subordinate or submits to the Father as he carries out the Father's will to be the Savior of the world. So his act of saving us is in submission to his Father. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is subordinate or submits to both the Father and the Son as he implements the Father's master plan, which is to unite all things in Christ, and as he sanctifies believers to be more Christ-like, as Jesus is the head of the church. So even within the Trinity, submission shows us that it does not speak to this issue of value, because each person of the Trinity is absolutely vital. So submission doesn't take away in any way, shape, or form from the Son or the Holy Spirit's essence as Almighty God. They each simply play their role. The Father is the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Son is the Savior and Lord of the world. And the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier of God's people. They are united as one God with the loving Father as the head. You see, submission is God's design. We see it in the Trinity. We see it in creation. We see it in the church, and of course we see it here as the basis for Christian marriage. Wives submit to their husbands who are the head. So each retain their separate identity, each play their role, and they are united as one. So here's the thing, and this is the truth. It doesn't matter if you like the role that you've been assigned to or not. It's just how God designed it. And when we willingly submit to his design, it puts us in step with his will, and he fills us with his spirit. Now this 
is a truth that has amazing power to it. It is something that we see over and over again in Scripture, and so we must grasp it and apply it to our lives. That when we choose to submit to His design, it puts us in step with His will, and He fills us with His Spirit. So let's review our Scripture from last week, and I want you to note the transition to this week's text. Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, praising and giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And now our text for today. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the truth about the way God designed marriage for wives is that they're to submit to their husbands. And the truth about the way God designed marriage for husbands is that they are to love their wives. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, husbands, boss your wives around or treat them poorly. It also doesn't say, husbands, are to enforce submission because as we learned last week, Wives are to voluntarily submit. No, it simply says, husbands, you're the head. So lead, not in tyranny, but in love, just like the Father does as the head of the triune God. So now, what does that really mean to love? Because love is perhaps the most often misunderstood word out there, in our vocabulary for that matter. We love good weather. We love it when someone scratches our back. And who doesn't love a good stack of pancakes? So we use this word love routinely to characterize really just about anything that makes us happy. And then, of course, the likes of Disney and Hallmark, they've muddled it to the point where we have no understanding of love, right? They equate it to butterflies, twinkles in our eyes. These warm feelings may even make us blush seems to be something you can fall into and fall out of on a whim, and it's often just based on how you feel that day. So it's no wonder husbands don't really know what they're supposed to do when they're told to love their wives, because the concept of love today only bears a slight hint of what Paul meant back in the day when he wrote it in this text. And that's why we turn to Scripture to understand its true meaning. And when we do, we find one overarching theme, that love is an act of the will. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not something we fall into and fall out of. It's not about happy. It's about choosing holy. It is an act of the will. And we all actually know this to be true because we've experienced it in practice. Do you remember back in the day, elementary school, when you had that crush on somebody? And no matter how hard you tried, no matter how funny you tried to be, you simply couldn't get that other person to love you back. And by the looks on some of your faces, you're still bearing the scars from that, right? It hurt. It hurt bad, didn't it? But here's the thing. You can force people to do all sorts of things by incentives or by actually threatening them. But the one thing you can't force anybody to do is to love you. It is their choice because it is an act of the will. That's the first thing 
we must be crystal clear about with regard to love. Of course, here at Four Mile, you know, we always look at the words and we want to try and understand what they meant in the original language. So let's check out this word for love. Now, there's only one word used for love in English, and that's why we apply it to marriage and pancakes alike. But when we look at the Greek and Hebrew, there's actually many different words, and it depends on how you look at those words. There can be as many as six to eight of them. And even among those words, you really have to understand the context in which they're written to fully grasp the meaning of those words. Now, most theologians agree that love falls into four major categories when you look across Scripture. So we're going to focus on these four main groupings that we're going to use the Greek because that's probably somewhat familiar to many of you. I imagine some of you have seen this before. The first is eros, which is sexual in nature or of the flesh. That's how it's designed. It's what we often think about with romantic kind of love. It's that stuff that um, Disney and Hallmark and others kind of twist and turn around. Now, this word is not used in the New Testament, but we do find it in the Old Testament, and it is a form of love that God created. Now, many Christians bristle at this. They feel a little uncomfortable because it has that three-letter word that makes us all feel a little awkward. And so they look at it as though it's bad. But it's actually a really important aspect of love within a marriage. The problem is it can only unfold inside a marriage. It's Eros love is only for the fire pit of marriage and nowhere else. And that's where things get twisted with that one. The second is philio, which is friendship or brotherly affection. It has no sexual connotation at all, so it can apply across and within genders. And there's an element of filial love between a husband and a wife because there are aspects of friendship and affection that we find in marriage. The third is storge, which is protective or familial, the love a parent has for a child. It too has a place in marriage relationship as it forms the basis of security within a family. When storge is present, we can let down our guard because we're with our families, so we can be ourselves. The fourth is agape, which is godly love. It's selfless. It contains an unconditional fondness. It is the way in which God loves his adopted children. He is unconditionally fond of them, meaning it doesn't matter what a person has done or how worthy he or she may be. This kind of love withstands it all. It's the kind that is permeated with grace. Agape is the term that Paul is using here in this particular text. He is directing husbands to love their wives in this sense, the way that God loves his adopted children. It's the highest form of love. It's selfless, placing the needs of a wife above the needs of a husband. It's unconditional, meaning it's not dependent upon the wife's behavior. There's just a fondness that a husband has for his wife in the sense that there's a heartfelt devotion for her. Paul describes it beautifully in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Husbands, this is how you are to love your wives, with agape love. Agape love is patient and kind. So husbands are to be slow to anger, gentle, caring, benevolent. Agape love does not envy or boast. So husbands, they don't harbor bitterness or show off. 
Agape love is not arrogant or rude. So husbands don't act superior or disrespect their wives. Agape love doesn't insist on its own way. So husbands aren't focused on pleasing themselves. Agape love is not irritable or resentful. So husbands are not grouchy or easily offended. Agape love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So husbands, they pursue truth. Agape love bears, believes, and hopes all things. So husbands display abiding character. Agape love endures all things. It never ends. So that means husbands, you persevere to the finish. It's part of that oath couples take when they exchange their marriage vows, until death us do part. That is a vow before Almighty God that must never be taken lightly. It's what keeps a marriage. It's what strengthens us to resist the temptation to focus on self. And I will tell you, this vow you made before God, it is what will keep you from giving into that temptation to cheat on your spouse. Certainly there's an element of, I don't want to cheat on my spouse because it could hurt her. But my own love for self and my own selfishness will probably trump that, particularly in a weak moment. But rather, what keeps me from doing that is because I made a vow before Almighty God, and that vow matters. It's so important that we remember these vows we make. Now you see it's a choice to do all eight of those things up there because love is an act of the will. And when husbands choose to love their wives that way, they actually make it a joy for their wives to submit. And they're both filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when we submit to God's design, it puts us in step with his will, and he fills us with his spirit. And then Paul gives us yet another way for husbands to consider loving their wives. He writes, as Christ loved the church. So then this is a specific call for husbands to learn, to know, to actually be very aware of how it is that Christ loved the church. And to be able to do that, they must know the Word of God. They must be in the Scriptures. Think about that. So when you decide to put your big boy pants on and go get yourself married, you're basically deciding to live out of this book for the rest of your life. And that means you got to spend more time with the book in this position than this position. And that's something we all need to be convicted of because this is what shows us how Christ loved the church. And when we grasp all that Christ did to love us, all that he did to rescue us, to establish the church and to redeem it, we begin to see how it is that husbands are to love their wives. But here's the thing. It's not just head knowledge. It's also something we have to experience it because it's not until we experience Christ's love for us that we can begin to start showing our wives what that love looks like in our marriage. So let's briefly consider a couple of truths from Scripture about how Christ loves his church. First, husbands. Do you know how much Christ loves the church despite your own unworthiness? Think about that for a minute. Because if you've experienced that, your own unworthiness and what Christ did for you, you too 
will love your wife, no matter how unworthy of your love she may be some days. Second, husbands. Do you know how much Christ loved the church, desiring for you to be holy because he longed for you to be reconciled to his Father as a beloved child of God? Because if you've experienced that, you too will love your wife by longing for her to be holy, reconciling her to her heavenly Father as a beloved child too. Third, husbands, do you know the gentle yet powerful love of Christ that changes hearts and minds, where Christ just presents the truth and then he presents a choice and he leaves it up to your will, never coercing or manipulating outcomes. He never forces you to follow him. It's your choice. Because if you've experienced that, you too will love your wife with that kind of gentle love, never bullying or forcing your way with her. Fourth, husbands, do you know the love of Christ that resulted in your sins being forgiven? Because if you've experienced that, you too will love your wife by forgiving her any time she sins against you. You see, husbands, if you know this, if you've experienced it, if you've even just tasted a little bit of it, then you know exactly what Paul means here. And so you must choose to love your wife as Christ loved the church, because love is an act of the will. And then Paul turns to the cost of loving. He writes, and gave himself up for her. So this is sacrificial language, speaking to the price Christ paid to atone for our sins on the cross. Now a sacrifice is defined as anything consecrated and offered to God. In Old Testament times, we know animals were sacrificed in order to atone for sins. So if we're born again, then we know about Christ's sacrifice for the church. It's what changed each of our individual lives. It's what caused the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And it's what put us on that narrow path that leads to the God's kingdom up there. You see on that graphic. So as Christ gave himself up for the church so too must a husband give himself up for his wife. In other words, husbands, there is a cost associated with loving your wife like this. And you may be thinking to yourself, shoot, I'm called to do that all the way to the cross? Not at all. That's not what Paul is saying. Because Christ's sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. It's never needing to be repeated again. So husbands, don't give yourselves up for your wives in that sense. What we're talking about here is a living sacrifice. Now, this, of course, is not new language to us here at Four Mile. We actually talk about it all the time. It's one of the cornerstone passages for our pillars, where we live out our faith in our everyday, ordinary lives. Paul wrote about it in the 12th chapter of his letter to the church in Rome, where he instructs believers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you hear that? This is your spiritual worship. So a living sacrifice is spiritual worship. And that brings us full circle to what we started with today when we talked about worship and how we do our worship in the middle voice and how we are, our entire lives of worship 
are what we place before God when we're born again. So husbands, when you give yourself up to your wife in this sense, as a living sacrifice, one that is holy and acceptable to God, it's considered spiritual worship. In other words, it's part of praising, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So born-again husbands, it's what fills you with the Holy Spirit so that you can progress in holiness. So you see, loving your wife this way, it's not a burden. It's a privilege because you're filled with the Holy Spirit as you do it. And wives, you got to admit too, it's not a burden to submit to a husband that chooses to love you just like this. Rather, it's a privilege to submit to your husband God's way because you too will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, being obedient to God's design puts us in step with his will and it fills us with his spirit. And that is how both husbands and wives progress in holiness. It's how they imitate God. It's how they walk in love. And so it's only appropriate for our response time today that we do this by celebrating the sacrament of communion. It is a reminder to us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf to make all of this possible. It shows us the extent of Christ's love for the church. Now this morning, we're going to come forward to receive communion. And as you can see on the, on the graphics behind me here, we have a couple of ways in which you will come forward. So if you're down here on the main sanctuary level, I'll release you from the middle. You'll come forward, receive the elements, and you'll return to your pews. Careful over here. Just watch your head. It's part of that humility thing. Duck if you need to. Um, there should be plenty of room to get through there. And of course, upstairs in the balcony, we'll have some elders up there directing you through that. And you can see what that looks like here on the screen as well. Now, the communion table is open to all those who've placed their faith in Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. And before Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood for you and me, he had a meal with his disciples instituting communion between God and his people for all time. Of course, Paul instructs us to examine ourselves before we receive the elements. And again, it's always a reminder. We're not examining ourselves for our worthiness because none of us are worthy. Rather, we are examining ourselves to ensure that we are coming before him in all humility with our eyes fixed on his glory alone. So let's take a few moments in the quiet of our hearts to confess our sins, to accept his forgiveness, and to recommit ourselves in humble obedience to his service. These elements represent the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a Savior. You are our God and we are your people. And you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, establishing this new covenant that we all live under. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only, and our souls shall be healed. Amen. 